Let's pray before we read God's word. Thank you, God, that you are a good shepherd. You are the one that leads us, that protects us, that guides us, and you draw us into relationship with you. Just as you and the Father are one, you call us into the same relationship. So we pray that you would edify your word, you would encourage us today by it. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to steal Derek's chair for just a second, if I may. All right, so we're going to start in John chapter 10, and we're going to jump right in, starting in verse 22, and we're just going to take this a couple verses at a time. So Kyle, if you can throw the first thing up there. It says, Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. Okay? And so the Feast of Dedication, anyone know what that is? Come on, what is it? Hanukkah, thank you. Thank you, Brother Jim. Um, so it's the season of Hanukkah. So it's wintertime. As you know, in a couple months, we will be celebrating Hanukkah. But it's important to start there, and we need a little bit of a background of what they are celebrating. And for those of you that don't know, um, about 200 years before Jesus came in this time, in about 167 B.C., uh, the Greeks and the Syrians had come to overthrow um, the Jewish temple and their place of worship, and they tried to Hellenize the Jews. They, and so... Oh, I'm going to screw up his name. I'm not good with him. But Antiochus Epiphanes, okay, um, the Greek leader, the Greek and Syrian leader has come, and he basically came and destroyed the temple. He desecrated it. He placed his Zeus in there, the idols to Zeus, where they would worship Zeus. Um, he also slaughtered pigs in the Jewish temple, and he simply desecrated it to a place where it was ruined, and the Jews could no longer worship there, and they no longer were allowed to worship there. And so the family of the Maccabees, specifically Judah, known as Judah the, no one knows, Judah the Hammer. Thank you. I'm just going to keep relying on Jim today, all right? Um, Judah the Hammer um, of the Jewish family, he rises up and he leads a revolt against the Greeks. And basically he overthrows them after a three-year struggle of war and turmoil and fighting. He's able to overthrow um, the Greeks and the Syrians there and to reclaim the temple for worship. And so he cleanses it, and he goes in, and he restores a place to where the Jews could worship. And hence, we still celebrate today Hanukkah. And so this is the festival, and this is the thing that they're celebrating at this time, and it's important to note that. So it goes on to say, it was winter, and Jesus was there. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, What it might sound like at first reading is that they were really curious and they just really wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah. Are you the one? You know, are you our savior? Are you the anointed one? Are you the chosen one? Please, if you are, just tell us. We're willing to follow you, you know? Almost like a little kid just hoping that Santa Claus is real. You know, are you Santa? Are you the real one? Will you just tell me if you're real and I'll follow you? That's kind of how this reads at first, but let me tell you something. That is not what the Jews were thinking. (laughs) That is not what they had in mind. They weren't going to say, you know, if Jesus said, I am the Messiah, they weren't going to just bow down and worship and say, yes, finally, you're here. I'm going to follow you. It's not what they had in mind, and it's not what um, they were thinking. In fact, they were frustrated, and they were wanting Jesus to admit to it and to say that he was the Messiah because they wanted something actionable and something that they could put him on trial for, something they could accuse him of, And basically, it was like a good investigative reporter trying to bait him into saying something that they could condemn him for. So the hearts really weren't to bow down to the Messiah. They weren't to yield to him or to worship him or to say, yes, finally, the Savior is here. They wanted to accuse him and they wanted to condemn him and they were looking for something to trap him with. 
And so they asked, you know, if you are the Messiah, please tell us plainly. You know, just let us know if you are the Messiah. See, they had this expectation, this thought. Remember, they're celebrating Hanukkah and celebrating Judah the Hammer who has come and to reclaim temple worship and to restore and who overthrew the Greeks and gave them back their power. So in their mind, the Jews had this idea that they wanted maybe the same type of savior, a political figure who would come to rule and reign and overthrow the Romans and restore temple worship in all of the land and every region would come and worship in Jerusalem. And so Jesus didn't quite fit that mold of the Messiah. Remember, Jesus saw that he almost antagonized them a little bit by doing miracles and healing and feeding people on the Sabbath and he didn't keep that and that frustrated the Jews. And he associated with the low and the weak and the poor, and he spent time with the Samaritans. And he didn't come for the Pharisees and the religious elite to lead a political regime and to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so they had this thought and this expectation of this is what the Messiah should look like, and Jesus just didn't quite fit that mold. How many of us, we have our expectations or our thoughts or our ideas about how God should act? or what God should look like. You know, if Jesus was really the Lord and King and Savior, this is what he would do in this situation. You know, or if God were really real, why did he do this, or why did he do that, or why didn't he do it like this? And we come with our own expectations and our own thoughts and our own ideas about how God should act, as if, you know, we were the creator of the heavens and the earth, and our morals and our thoughts were the ones that should rule and should reign. And so much like the Jews who had the expectation of this powerful, ruling, all-encompassing Messiah that was going to come and overthrow, they had, we also have our thoughts and our ideas about what Jesus should look like, how he should act, and the way that he should behave. And we get disappointed. You know, if I was God, I would do this. Or if God was really God and he really wanted to prove himself, he would do this. You know, or he'd prove himself here. And we place all these expectations on him as if he should conform to how I want him to act. C.S. Lewis made famous a thing, well, he didn't originate it, but he made it famous of a thing called the trilemma. Um, If you go to the next slide, he basically reduced it to this, was that you can reduce Jesus to either of three things. You can either call him a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. He proposes that you couldn't just assent to Jesus that he was just a good moral teacher, because this good moral teacher also made claims to be the Son of God, to be one with the Father, and to be God. And so either he was a lunatic, a madman that was crazy, that had a God complex, not unlike some of your celebrities and famous people today. Um, And so maybe Jesus was just this crazy guy that thought that he was God um, and just was some sociopath that said, you know what, I'm going to gather up a crowd and I'm going to make them follow me and I'm going to have this good teaching that I'm going to intermingle in the midst of it so that they will follow and that they'll believe. And then somehow he conned 12 followers and his 12 disciples who were also a little bit mad and crazy so that they would follow and that they would believe and they would spread his message after Jesus had died. So either Jesus was some madman that somehow conjured up a following that we all somehow still today believe and we're just following the sayings of a crazy person. But if he's not a madman, if he's not a crazy, it's not a lunatic, then maybe he's a liar. Maybe he was that guy that could call you on the phone and convince you that your car's warranty was expired and he could convince you to buy another one, okay? Maybe he was just that good of a salesman. He was just that good of a con man that he could talk you into something and he had this, these really good sayings and these really good teachings that he had collected and they were really good and everyone should believe him. 
But in the end, he was just a liar, you know, about the part where he was a son of God. He just used God for power and to gain a following. Um, And all of it really wasn't true. But what type of good moral teacher would Jesus be if he taught you to love others, to serve others, and had a whole bunch of good teachings, but in the end lied about who he was, about his divinity, and what he came to do, right? The claims that he made can't simply just be dismissed as, well, he was just a little confused. It would make him a liar, which would nullify his teaching. Or he could lastly be Lord, that he could be exactly who he said he was, and we could bow down and serve him as that. I have here a saying. Um, actually, we'll wait on that. It says, well, it says this. It says, it is from his birth that most of human races dates its calendar. It's by his name that thousands curse, and it is in his name that millions pray. Right? And so who do we say that Jesus is today? Are we going to reduce him to just some madman that had some crazy teaching? Or was he just some liar? Or is he the Lord? The Jewish people at the time that are asking, you know, if you're the Messiah, will you just please tell us plainly? Just let us know who you are. They probably had in their mind that he was either a lunatic or maybe a liar, but he certainly wasn't Lord. And so Jesus responds to them, and Jesus answers, and if you go to the next verse, it says this. Next one, maybe. There we go. Jesus answered and said, I did tell you. Now, at first glance, I did tell you. Um, That would be confusing to the Jews, because up until this point, Jesus actually hasn't revealed to them that he is the Christ or he is the Messiah. You might remember that he told his disciples and that Peter said, you are the Christ, and he told his closest followers that he was the Messiah. You may have remembered that he reminded the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that he was the Messiah. But he has never publicly professed to the Jews and to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders yet that he was the Messiah, because that came with a certain almost death sentence for him. But here he says, I did tell you, but you did not believe The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So Jesus goes on to say that um, I did tell you. It's like, well, when did you speak it to me, Jesus? When did you tell me? Remind me of the teaching. And he says, it's not in the words, but it says this. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. And so Jesus is saying in the miracles, in the healings, in the feeding of the 5,000, in the feeding of the 4,000, in my teachings on the Sermon of the Mount, he is saying, I have revealed myself to be exactly who you think that I am. If you go to the next slide, in Isaiah 35, it says this. This is a prophecy about Jesus and Isaiah in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus ever came onto the picture. Verses that the Jews and the Pharisees and the ones asking Jesus these questions would have known. They would have known these scriptures. And they testify about Jesus and it says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. And so this is a prophecy saying that when Jesus comes that the lame are going to walk, the mute are going to talk, and we will rejoice and the mute will rejoice with joy. In John alone, in John chapter 5, Jesus finds a lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and what does he do? He restores him so that he can walk again. In John chapter 9, he encounters a blind man that is born blind, and what does Jesus do? He gives him his eyesight back. And so Jesus is saying, you know, 
Here's the scripture. The blind eyes will be opened and the lame will leap like a deer. And these Jews and the people that were asking Jesus this question, they would have seen it in the days before. That Jesus did the miracles before their very own eyes, yet they missed it. And Jesus is saying, the work that I do and the things that I do and the teachings that I give, they testify to who I am and what I do. But once again, we're not all that uncommon. Just like we place our expectations and our thoughts and our ideas on God of how he should perform, so too um, do we miss some of the things that he has done. Because at this point, Jesus hasn't even died and gone to the cross and been resurrected again. But 2,000 years later, what testimony do we have? We have the cross of Christ, which identifies and shows the work that which he did come to do. We have his book that has been preserved for over 4,000 years of the written testimony of what God has done, where in the Old Testament prophesies and Jesus fulfilled every single one of those prophecies. We have evidence. We can't deny, no one can deny that Jesus was a true historical figure that walked to this earth. Um, Jewish authorities that don't assent to him to being the Messiah recognize him as a true factual person that walked this earth. The Romans, the ones that persecuted him, the ones that sentenced him to death, their historians write that Jesus was a true man that walked this earth. And so just like the people asking the question, please show us, and Jesus is saying, it's here in my teachings and in my works, so too the evidence stands for us 2,000 years later. We have it right in front of us, right here in the written word, and right there on the cross that identifies and testifies to the work of Christ. And so what's our excuse? Jesus goes on to say that, um, go back one slide, Kyle, thank you. He says, the works I do in my Father's name, they testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, that statement alone had to be something, because these were God's people. He was speaking to Jewish people, Jewish leaders, and they were God's people. They were his followers. They were the one, the blessed nation, the chosen generation, right? And Jesus is telling them right here, yeah, you don't believe me and you don't know this because you are not my sheep. You're not a part of my flock. So then which begs the question, or at least the question that I would want to ask is, what does constitute being a part of the flock? What does it mean to be a sheep? What does it mean to be one of his. Once again, Jesus answers in the next verse, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Does it sound familiar what we've been talking about? His sheep know his voice, he knows them, and they follow him. See, a lot of people um, make a public profession or a lot of people say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I follow him. Yes, I love God. You know, you can talk to a lot of people in your neighborhoods and at your job and they'll say, yes, I believe in God. And they'll make a confession with their mouth that they believe in God. But that simply isn't enough. The question goes, they know his voice, Jesus knows them, and they follow him. For example, I can talk about how great this chair is. This is a rock-solid chair, you know, the sturdiest chair that there ever was. Um, you know, it's going to hold me. Um, you know, it can support up to 500 pounds. That's just the best chair. I just have faith that that thing is going to hold me. Right? Great. What do you want to see? You want to see that if I can put my faith into action, 
I did this at uh, a Bible study a couple weeks ago, and my teenager looked at me and goes, I was really praying that that would fall. <laughs> um, bless their hearts. Um, but the truth is, is that we want to, their faith is not just about making a public profession. It's not about just saying it. It's not about just saying, yes, Jesus is Lord. It's manifested in the fruit and in the faith of our lives. We talked just in our James series that faith without works is dead, and you will know people by their fruit. And so Jesus is saying that if you are my sheep, not only do you know my voice, and I know you, but you follow me, that it's evidenced in your life, that you walk out that belief. One of the most dangerous things um, and one of the scariest verses of the entire Bible is found in Matthew 7, verse 22, and I'll just read it to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then Jesus, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. You see, it's not just enough to know about Jesus. It's not just enough to say, yes, he was a a good teacher. It's not just enough to know about the love of God. It's, does he know you? And do you follow him? Is your faith manifested in the doing? It says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not do powerful things? Weren't we even able to drive out demons in your name? And it says, and Jesus said to them, and I never knew you. Billy Graham once said that out of the millions of people that attended his um, gatherings and crusades, he said he would estimate that only 5% were truly saved or had ever come to a true saving faith. See, many people have made the public declaration but haven't walked it out. But here's the truth, and here's one of the beautiful things and one of the most reassuring things of Scripture, and that if you are one of those sheep, that if you do hear his voice, and he does know you, and you do follow him, not only does he promise to be your shepherd that guides you, that leads you, and protects you, he also chooses to bless you. If he didn't just save me, saving me alone would be plenty enough for me to rejoice and for me to worship from here until eternity. But not only does he do that, he chooses to bless us. Where's the proof of that? We continue to read on in John chapter 28. Next slide. I give them eternal life. Think about that. Not only does Jesus rescue us and redeem us, he has come to give us eternal life. And it says, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We as Americans and we here in Western culture, we love our sense of security and safety. I can show you on my keys where I have a button that I can press where a car alarm will go off if something's happening with my car. How many of you guys have home detection systems at your home where, you know, as someone breaks in, you have an alert system or something to tell you that something is wrong? You know, we drive in cars that have seatbelts and airbags and we view safety ratings of how they're going to handle in a crash. We love our safety. That's where we get the term helicopter parents, you know. We have parents that just want to hover and protect and to shield because we emphasize the safety and protection of our children. And we almost worship it as the best thing in life is to be safe 
and secure, free from harm and risk. And I don't know that we have done it any better or succeeded any better than here in the 21st century here in America where it's safety. You know, we got to be safe. Is it safe? How many of you guys, before doing something, that's the first question you ask, you know, is it safe? Can I do this? And we calculate the risk and we play it out to see, you know, well, if this fails, then we have a backup plan upon a backup plan upon a backup plan. So that way we know that we are safe. And the same thing happens in our spiritual life is that we desire and we long for a sense of safety and security and to sure us up and to affirm us. Because how many of you guys have ever met the Christian that, you know, comes to the altar and they respond to the altar call and they say yes to Jesus and they're all in and then you're like, huh, I thought you did that five months ago, right? Or the other, and then that person, you talk to someone else and goes, yeah, well, I saw them go up front for an altar call two years ago. Well, they, yeah, well, I was here 10 years ago and they responded to an altar call. And to every call for salvation, they've responded because they're afraid and they're fearful that they might just not be in the kingdom of God. How many of you guys have ever personally wrestled with that in your own life? It's been a struggle. Am I in or am I out? You know, I have this sin and this wickedness and I still do these things that I don't want to do. And I know that being a follower of Jesus over here looks like this. And we are like, am I in or am I out? Maybe I should just go up and maybe I should say another prayer of salvation. Um, so that I'm safe and that I'm secure and that I'm in so that way I don't, you know, lose it. And so it really, this verse really answers the question that many of us ask and many Christians ask is, can we lose our salvation? One preacher better asked it this way. It's not, can you lose your salvation? It's, can God lose you? Listen to me. For those of us that have made a confession of faith and that we know him and he knows us and that we follow him, These verses up here make this a slam dunk. What does it say? It says that no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I don't know about you, but that's the greatest safety net and the greatest security that I could ever feel. Because the truth is, is that I am prone to wonder, just as the hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That I am still a man of sin and shortcomings, and I can try to walk the straight and narrow, but how many of us know that we veer to the left and to the right far more often than we would ever want to admit? And we stumble and we fall short. And so if my salvation depended upon me and my efforts and my works, my goodness, I would never make it. And I would be out. You see, sometimes our grip can be shaky and can be frail and can be wobbly and we can let go of God and we can let loose. But the truth is, is that his grip is strong and firm and no one, no one can snatch you from the palm of his hand. And that should bring some reassurance and some positive. And that should create an attitude of worship within you to know that even when I stumble, even when I fall, and even when I have been unfaithful, that God is faithful and he is committed and he is loving and he does not let go of me. I love that it says, my father who has given them to me is greater, is greater than all. What does that mean? It means that neither angel nor demon nor principality or power, right, neither high nor low nor anything here on this earth can separate me from the love of God. And so if you're here today and you wrestle with that, you know, am I in or am I out? Can I lose my salvation? My friends, you're not that powerful. (laughs) It's that his grip and his hand is upon you, and he cannot lose one of his sheep. 
And so that begs the question, some would argue, well, what does that mean, you know, Pastor Ryan? What if someone says, you know, a prayer, and it says, you know what? That says I can just get saved and then go on my life and sin and do whatever and rebel and walk away from God, and I'm saved. So that means at the end of my days, Jesus is going to save me. If that's your attitude and if that's your mentality, um, I would go back to his sheep know his voice. (laughs) He knows them, and they follow him. And if your heart really, after being saved and and receiving a salvation and seeing the God that does that, wants to walk away and desires to walk away and wants to just live a life of sin, the question is, do you really know him? Because the heart that is saved and the one that does know the shepherd's voice is that when they hear that and when they hear that the Father cannot lose them and the Father does not let go of them, you know what that creates in the believer? A sense of rejoice and worship. And how awesome. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, for your love. God, I'm so sorry that I let go, but Lord, thank you that you do not. And it produces within us worship and a desire to know him. Not the opposite. It doesn't produce a lifestyle of sin. But today, if you've wrestled with that and you're unsure, know today that there's a security net and a safety net and that you can fall into the everlasting, eternal arms of the Father. And no one can match him in his strength. And he can't let go of you. John concludes, or Jesus concludes um, in John chapter 10, verse 30, and says this, that I and the Father are one. You know that statement that they wanted, tell us plainly who you are, you know, give us something so that we can hold it against you? There it is. I and the Father are one. What's he saying? He's saying, I am the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. I am the suffering servant. I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. I am the one that have come to call my people by my name and gather a flock. And he's given them the answer. I am the Messiah. I am who you think that I am. And he confirms what is said in the beginning of John in John chapter 1. What's he confessing to? He's confessing to this, that in the, wor- in the beginning was the word And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through Him, all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, and the through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to do that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And lastly, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus gives them the answer that they're looking for. He's saying, I am the word made flesh, and I am the one dwelling among you. I am the one who has come to save and to rescue and to deliver you from your sin. I am the one who has come to break the bondage over your lives and to loose the chains on your life. I am the one who has come to heal and give power to the lame and to the mute. I am him. Me and the Father are one.
And so when he makes that, um, in verse 31, it says, And again, the Jews picked up the stones to stone him. Because there it was. You know, there's the answer. You know, we can now hold you guilty and accountable. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they say, we're not stoning you because of your works, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them and said, it is not written in your law, I have said, you are God's. If he called them God's, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent him into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe in me unless I do what the Father does. But if I do it, even though you might not believe in me, once again, believe in the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And so there he was. He gave them the answer and he gave them the proof and all of the evidence that this is who I am, this is what I have come to do, and me and the Father are one. But they didn't see it. They didn't recognize him and they didn't assent to him the lordship and the worship and the honor that he was due. And so that would be my question to us here as a congregation today is how do we answer that question? What is he to us? Is he just some madman, some lunatic that somehow everyone has followed and been conned into following for 2,000 years? A billion believers across the globe have just somehow been tricked? Was he just some liar that just wanted a following and wanted to build up his own ego and convinced a whole bunch of other people to rally around him? You see, the Jews, they tried to nitpick and they tried to dance around and they tried to find their little flaws. I'm not going to follow Jesus because of this. This is what a Messiah looks like, this, that. And they did everything but acknowledge Jesus for who he was. And how often do we do the same in our lives? Well, you know, if, if Jesus just did this, or if Jesus only did that, or, you know, if he only was more accepting here or more loving here, this, that, and we try to dance and nitpick around as if we can justify our unbelief and our reasons that we don't believe. But he would come to us today and ask, you know, who is he to you? That's a question you have to answer. Is he just a lunatic, a liar, or is he Lord? Is he the one that is raised to the right hand of the Father and one day that every knee and tongue will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. In Hebrews 3.15, it says this. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And today, if God is stirring you and God is moving you and you are hearing his voice, today is the day to respond and to say, Yes, Lord, I hear your voice. I want to be one of your sheep. I want to join the kingdom of God. I want to be one of your children. And if that's you today, respond to that. Respond to what he is doing in your heart. And say, yes, Lord. I want to acknowledge you as Lord. I'm going to bow and I'm going to confess my sins and I'm going to repent for my sinful and wicked ways. And I trust you as my Lord and my Savior and you are the Messiah, the risen one. Maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum where you are a Christian and you have walked with God. Um, but you've never felt safe and you've never felt secure. And maybe it has been you that's run to the altar time after time just so that way you could be sure that you're in. Today, would you trust the word of God that he cannot let go of you? And will you put your trust in him? 
I've said it before that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. You can have all the faith in the world, and if you have all the faith in the wrong thing, it won't save you. But if you have a little faith in the right thing, the power is in the object, not within me. Right? And so faith in the right object, faith in the lordship of Christ can save and deliver me. And so rest in that, in his assurance, in his peace. And so I'm going to ask, I asked Derek to come, um, and we're going to sing a hymn um, that this sermon reminds me of. It's called Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, Safe and Secure from All Alarms when I lean on the everlasting arms. And so I'm going to ask you to sing with me, and I'm going to ask you to respond in your own heart that you would lean and depend upon his mercy, his grace, and his love, and that you can trust that. And if today you haven't heard his voice and, you are, and God is stirring and you know that he's speaking to you, respond. Don't harden your heart. You can know him as Lord and Savior today.